And the other thing that I think is a good thing about like the changes that, that we've made is um, we're trying to get more voices uh, up here speaking to you all about God and Jesus and Christianity. And, you know, you've been hearing a regular, usually it's like me and Mike and, and Maggie, uh, but uh, Maggie also is doing other work up, up, up the hill. Um, so we're inviting other people to come and share. And so this morning, I'm excited to invite Kitty to come and share with us Kitty Vertolini Abbott. And Kitty's been hanging out here for the last couple years. Maybe you've seen her around. Uh, she, for a while, uh, she was doing a ministry with the Goodwill um, Transition Space and going in and, and having Bible study with the guys uh, down there. Uh, that's until she got a job in, in, in Delaware, <laughs> the University of Delaware, where she's a professor of speech pathology. So she's been uh, commuting back. Do you, do you like have a house there and a house here? Is that... Working on those things, yeah. But she's still, still around here, which uh, I'm grateful for. Uh, she serves on our um, uh, personnel uh, committee. And Kitty is also on her way to being ordained in the American Baptist Church or American Baptist churches, which she said is not to be confused with the Southern Baptist Church. Very different thing, different, different things happening in those spaces. So uh, I've been wanting to invite uh, Kitty to, to share with us for some time, so I, I did today. And Kitty, why don't you come on up? And as she comes forward, let us pray for her. Holy, gracious God, we give you thanks again for bringing us together in this space. As we come up to this place where we encounter your word, uh, God, we pray your, your blessing upon the word that will be given to us. We're thankful for how it comes to us through the ages, through the centuries, and still has something to speak into our lives and can be transforming. So bless Kitty as she speaks this morning. May her words be your words, and may your peace be upon her. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I understand why you asked me to preach today. It's because it's low Sunday, <laughs> right? And we don't want to contaminate the impression of uh, people who might be here for the first time. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So um, today's topic is Doubting Thomas. And I'm going to read um, various uh, passages from John 20. And part of it you may have heard about last week. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, teacher. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, okay, fine. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Word of the Lord. As with most scripture, this passage has many layers, and it's hard to know where to start. My husband, who's sitting right over there, knows that I am a napkin writer. I often eat out, often eat out alone, especially in Delaware when he's here and all that good stuff. And I have been composing this sermon on napkins for the past few weeks, several weeks, since it was determined that I would um, doubt uh, that I would doubt on that, that I would preach on this topic. <laughs> yes. Um, and I have several versions of this sermon that I could show to you because I kept finding really cool stuff. I'd be sitting at the restaurant, pull out my cell phone, look up the passage again and go, wow, I hadn't known, I hadn't seen that this was there. Maybe that's the direction I ought to go. Well, I'm going to start with a fun thing. I had just completed my, um, in, my uh, ordination interview. It's a little council with seven people who kind of grill you on a 20-page paper that you have written about God and Jesus and sin and salvation and all this stuff. And they were taking a little bit longer than usual in their deliberations. And as I was sitting upstairs waiting for their uh, verdict, um, I was talking to my pastor, and I said, well, this is interesting. I'm going to be uh, preaching on uh, doubting Thomas. And the first thing she did was she cracked up, right? And then I said, well, the first thing to notice about this passage is that Jesus walks through these walls, okay? Like the doors are locked, nobody can get in, and all of a sudden he's there. He must have walked through the walls. And she grabs me like this, and she goes, the wall, the wall, the wall. Now, anybody who's ever tried to uh, create a sermon knows what that moment is. It's a moment of, that's preachable. So, in light of what's going on in our country right now, and this is just for fun, this is not the meat of the sermon, but this is just for fun. In light of what's going on in our country right now with the wall, is there anything that we can do with that? That Jesus walks through walls? Hmm, I'm going to let you work with that one. Uh, but... Um, otherwise, there are three themes that kept popping out at me, and I was trying to figure out which theme to follow, and I finally decided I just have to go with all three of them. I just can't resist any of them. So, uh, The first two I will talk about briefly. First of all, in this passage, although the doctrine of the Trinity um, was only formalized in like the 400s, and Jesus being equated with God was only formalized as doctrine in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. But here in this passage in John, which is considered to be the most spiritualized um, uh, gospel, I think by most people, we have Jesus being both very otherworldly and very human. Hmm, 
So we have something that kind of foreshadows the notion of the Trinity. So first of all, as we just said, he walks through walls. That's kind of otherworldly, right? That's kind of like something that only God could do. Or is he a ghost? Some people have said, does that mean that he was a ghost? Well, actually, not so much, because there's this whole thing about the wounds in his hand and his side and stuff like that that conjures up these horrible images for most of us, right, when we think about them graphically. And that's pretty human. So in this passage, Jesus is both otherworldly and very, very human. Second, there is the business of faith versus evidence. Okay, so before the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, people believed things um, based on faith. They took things based on faith because somebody else said so and somebody very knowledgeable said something and so they believed it. Expert opinion, we call it, okay? And so the, the earth is the center of the universe. They believed it. They didn't have evidence for it particularly, but they believed it, right? Um, but in the Enlightenment, we started to get the idea that we want evidence for things that we believe, right? And right now, since the 1980s or so, we have this theme just really booming in the, um, in the healthcare world uh, through a thing called evidence-based medicine. Okay, so before the 1980s, and I started practicing as a clinician before the 1980s, not much, because I was very young, I was very precocious. Um, uh, yeah, uh, so before then, we, we followed expert opinion. So I remember working in a department of otolaryngology, ear, nose, and throat department in Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and um, all the surgeons did this, these various surgeries a certain way because the chair of the department did them that way. Well, he was the expert. He should know, so we're going to do what, what he, he does. Well, um, in the 1980s or so, these guys came along, and they were all guys, and said, no, 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 we shouldn't be following, we shouldn't uh, make, uh, base our clinical decisions um, based on uh, expert opinion. We should go to the library, we should read books, and we should make our decisions, uh, articles and books, and we should make our decisions based, based on the best possible evidence, the best quality evidence that is available. And they even told us, thank you very much, what is the best quality evidence? It is a randomized control trial with control group, et cetera, et cetera, on large bodies of people, okay? So Thomas was kind of a, pre a precocious proponent of evidence-based faith, right? Sort of like, I'm from Missouri, show me, right? <laughs> right? And third, a third theme is closely related to the second one, and that has to do with belief versus doubt. The impression is that the first 10 disciples believed that Jesus was Jesus without seeing wounds in his hands and side. But Thomas refused to believe that Jesus was Jesus unless he saw. And Jesus appeared to be happier with those who believe without seeing than those like Thomas who have to see to believe, right? That, that's the interpretation. That's the classic interpretation of this passage. This interpretation is a bit misleading because, as a matter of fact, um, the disciples did see, the first ten did see Jesus. He, he showed them his wounds and his side spontaneously. It's just that they didn't ask to see them. But Thomas did ask to see him. Um, so basically, Jesus says in this passage, you've believed because you've seen me and you've touched my wounds to make sure they're real, to assure yourself that I am me. Blessed are those who can believe without having to see or touch physically, right? In other words, here in this passage, belief by faith rules, right? To heck with evidence. Evidence is not so high on the tier. Um, scripture speaks over and over to this point. I did a little searching. 
And I came up with hundreds of examples of this kind of a notion, of notion in, scri in scripture, and I'll read a few of them to you from Matthew 14. And early in the morning, he came walking uh, toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Also in Matthew, Matthew 17, he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, because nothing will be impossible for you. Romans 14. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Just a couple more. Hang on. James 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Second Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight, or not by seeing, as Thomas did. Hebrews, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the conviction of things not seen. For it is by, uh, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And the biggie. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe, whoever doubts, will be condemned. Let's take that one again. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe, doubts, will be condemned. So, in our passage, Jesus is kind to Thomas and acknowledges that Thomas believes, even if it's only because he has seen. Those who believe, those who have faith without having seen, are the fortunate ones. I consulted both my thesis advisor from seminary, Dale Allison, and our own Dan uh, Freyer uh, Griggs on the meaning of uh, the term, on the translation of the term uh, makarios, uh, blessed. Um, and they both informed me, and it was so nice they had the same answer, um, <laughs> that it, um, it, the, the most proper translation, most correct translation, narrowest would be uh, fortune, fortunate, okay? Fortunate. Um, and when we recognize that good fortune, uh, whatever f that uh, good fortune comes from, we feel joy and peace. I think that's the classic point of this passage. Blessed, fortunate are those who believe without seeing. Yep, that's the message. Believe. Have faith. Don't doubt. Doubt is bad. But wait. I recently saw some ads on the TV by this televangelist, Peter Popoff. He sells miracle water in baggies. <laughs> if you purchase this miracle water, you will rid yourself of debt. It's true. 
Uh, in fact, I can read from the webpage. This lady right here, Gloria Freeman, guess how much money she got, off to, uh, she got after he prayed with her and sent her the miracle spring water. How much did you get? Prompts an excited host of the infomercial. Um, $23,000, replied Freeman, to delirious applause from an awestruck crowd. It was close to $11,000, gushed another miracle water drinker. When you don't have that in your wallet, $11,000 is like $2 million to you, and I give God praise for that. It'll happen for you. He's a true prophet, she charged. And according to the same website, the miracle spring water comes with a miracle tool, and its peddlers suggest you can get it on your way, that it, that, that it can get you on your way to debt-free living. It can also influence divine money transfers directly into your account. Just buy the waters. The money will be, by divine hands, transferred. We don't need your, your account number or anything because God, you know, God knows your bank account, and by divine means, that money will be, um, the, the, the money will be transferred into your bank account. Yep. Or I've gotten some Facebook messages like this. Do not ask any questions. This is a test. Does God come first in your life? If so, stop what you're doing and send it to 12 people. If you love the devil, close this text. <laughs> you got me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I can't close the text because that means that I love the devil. Uh, if you love God, send this to 12 people like I did and watch what will happen in exactly 30 seconds. Another one. Read Psalm 123, 126. God asked me to tell you that everything will be all right from now on. You're going to be victorious and achieve all your goals. Today, Jesus Christ visited your home. On his way out, he took all your problems with him. See, you don't have any more problems. Did you notice? Okay. Do me a favor. Trust God and share this message with nine friends of yours. Nine. Uh, do not leave me out and watch. In four minutes, exactly four minutes, you will receive a very nice news. It costs nothing to share. I don't know about you, but probably most of us wouldn't buy the miracle water thing. We'd probably doubt it, right? And we might even doubt some of these Facebook posts, although sometimes they get you. You know, if you, if you don't forward this to 12 people, something horrible will happen. Well, I, you know, I might as well just forward it. What the heck? That would be nice. I'll have to look into it. But what about the prosperity gospels, right? Lots of people are buying the prosperity gospels. According to Wikipedia, favorite source, prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, or the gospel of success, is a religious belief among some Christians who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them, and that faith, positive faith, faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will cause one's, will increase one's material wealth. Prosperity theology views the Bible as a contract between God and humans. If humans have faith, not doubt, faith in God, God will uh, deliver security and prosperity. Joel Osteen, right? Is there any room for doubt in matters of faith? Are we really the people of blind faith? When should we have faith and when should we doubt? You might say, well, the miracle water guy, he's out because it wasn't written in scripture that way about him, okay? But the prosperity gospel is at least partially grounded in scripture, cherry-picked scripture, but grounded in scripture. 
What about doubt in matters that have, in fact, grounding in scripture? Oh, boy. For starters, not only in the Enlightened, but also around that same period in classical uh, humanism, um, these folks uh, uh, emphasized their view that doubt is central to life. Descartes said, if we are to be true, uh, real seekers of the truth, at least once in our life, we have to doubt everything. And in fact, the only thing that he didn't doubt was that he existed because he had thoughts. That was the only thing that he could be sure of, that he had thoughts. I think, therefore, I am. The Buddha said, doubt everything. Found your own light. What do our scriptures say about doubt? Well, we've already seen some pretty scathing examples of what many of our scriptures say about doubt. But in the first beatitude, and thanks, Dan, in the first beatitude, uh, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is better translated, I understand, as spirit beggars. Blessed, blessed are spirit beggars. But what is a spirit beggar? Apparently, it's a person who has a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, even. That's a spirit beggar, and is willing to put these at God's feet. Hmm, first beatitude. Even more striking, Jesus on the cross. The only words, actual words of Jesus that we, that we have, uh, because they're in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, or, or uh, Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's Jesus on the cross. Seemed to have a moment of doubt. What happened to blind faith? What happened to moving mountains with faith no bigger than a grain of mustard? There are a lot of people, holy people, who have doubted God, according to scripture. Psalm 88, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes to you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? In Mark 9, in Mark 9, man brings his child to Jesus. The child has been having, is, is occupied by an evil spirit, and the child has been having seizures and all kinds of horrible things happen to it since childhood, since early childhood. Jesus casts out the evil spirit, and Jesus says that all of these wonderful things can be, can be done for those who believe. And the child's father turns and says, I believe, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. In the same sentence, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now, that's pretty interesting because this man saw and had trouble believing. Thomas supposedly said he wouldn't believe unless he saw, so then he saw and then he believed. And this man didn't say, I have to see to believe. He did see, and yet he was struggling. I have a personal story to tell. On the evening of August 31st, 1982, um, I was walking down a uh, deserted highway late at night with my husband of four months uh, who was struck and killed by a passing car. You can imagine, for any of us who have experienced anything like that, and I know many of you have, you got lots of questions after that. You know, one of my biggest questions was about life after death. Is there life after death? Is there God? Who or what is God? And then the questions grew from there. What's prayer about? And just how is it that Jesus' death 2,000 years ago saves me today? How does that work? Right? Now, I questioned my faith deeply. I probably didn't abandon my faith because I kept asking the questions. I think probably most, most 
uh, devoted atheists don't spend a lot of time thinking about these kinds of things unless they think about them to convince themselves that we are all delusional, right? But this is a journey of doubts, and many of us, probably all of us here, have engaged in a journey of doubt at some point, and these questions are often very, very uncomfortable. However, generally, in my experience, when we are willing to put these questions at God's feet, or at anybody's feet, um, with time there are fruits. There are fruits that strengthen our faith rather than weakening it, and there are strengths that allow us to bring the fruits of that struggle to other people who are in moments of darkness. So is it good to believe without questions, without doubts? Is that a good thing? In this passage here, it seems like Jesus thinks that the people who believe without seeing are the fortunate ones, and Thomas is sort of like a second rung down the ladder of goodness of belief. And so I asked Dale Allison about that. I was an incredible um, New Testament scholar, as is Dan. And he said, no, I don't think that was a, a tier one and a tier two type of belief. He said, I don't think that was what was going on at all. The Gospel of John was written um, in the 90s, so about 60 years after Jesus died. So the people that he was talking to really hadn't seen Jesus, right? And Dale felt, feels that in, by saying to them, fortunate are those who believe without having seen, he's trying to encourage them. Like, you too can believe. It's not just the people who have seen who, who, who can believe, okay? Um, and ironically, perhaps the most important part of this whole passage here is that after Thomas has seen Jesus and has seen and put his hands in the wounds, he turns to Jesus and gasps, my Lord, my God, he is the only one who recognizes Jesus as Lord and God. So independent of how he got to his belief, once he got there, he went beyond. Maybe his doubt, doubt was worth something. Maybe the other people just sort of took it on blind faith and didn't have the depth of the struggle to then come to the realization, you're not only Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. To take this point a little bit further, we can roll the cameras back to the beginning of the scene that we talked about to Mary. Mary saw Jesus, she saw him, but she didn't even know it was him. She didn't know it was him, even though she was looking straight at him, until he called her by name. Mary. Then she recognized him. So maybe the real point of this passage, or one real point about this passage, is not whether we have to see, whether we need proof to believe. Maybe the point is not that doubting is a problem, or that whether we can believe without physical proof or miracles. Maybe that's not the central point. Maybe a central point in this passage is that however we come to Jesus, maybe we are truly blessed, maybe we're truly fortunate, when our belief goes beyond belief at some kind of surface level, and our belief is transformed into the recognition in our hearts in a transformative way of who Jesus really is for us. This happened with two people in this passage. With Mary, she saw him, and she didn't believe. She completely missed the point until he called her by name. And Thomas, 
who had to see to believe and then recognized Jesus as Lord and God, as the others did not. So, doubt or no doubt, maybe not, that's not the point. Maybe sometimes doubt has some good, good fruits. Maybe the point is our transformation when Jesus calls us by name. <laughs>